It's Friday, August 25th, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. When it comes to reclaiming abandoned mine lands, there are all kinds of ways to gauge how well ecosystems are recovering. One is to study types of wildlife that do particularly well in successional forest habitats. That's why Peck's latest reforestation project is focusing on two specific species of bird. It's interesting because you only see these young forests with disturbances such as abandoned mine lands. Um, so it's, it's a great opportunity for us to, to reintroduce this kind of habitat for these birds. Coming up, what can indicator species tell us about the health of reclaimed forest lands? We'll talk about that just ahead. First, a look at some of the week's news. It's been about a month since the state Senate approved budget legislation that would make sweeping changes to the Department of Environmental Protection's permitting authority over natural gas operations. And since then, opposition to those measures has been growing steadily and coming from all corners. For those keeping score at home, here is an updated list as of this week of individuals and groups that have come out to express skepticism or outright hostility to the budget riders. The Pennsylvania Environmental Council, for starters, to learn more on our position and all the reasons we oppose this legislation, visit PACPA.org. Also, three former DEP secretaries from both Democratic and Republican administrations, John Quigley, Michael Cranser, and David Hess, who we will check in with momentarily. Industry groups, including the Pennsylvania Independent Oil and Gas Association, have opposed the measures, also the Energy Association of Pennsylvania and the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry. Add to the list all of Pennsylvania's local government associations, which issued a joint letter to the governor and legislature this week. And as if there weren't enough bipartisan opposition to go around, the right-leaning Conservatives for Responsible Stewardship launched their campaign against the revenue bills last week. Here's CRS President David Jenkins speaking to Public News Service. It's ceding the state's responsibility for making sure we have clean air and clean water making the process much more user-friendly to the lobbyists that represent the industries that are being regulated. We won't lean and efficient government, but lean and efficient also has to be effective and accountable. And what this does is completely the opposite. It makes it less lean, less efficient, and less accountable. For more on this and other stories from the past week, let's now bring in David Hess. You know him as the former secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection and blogger at PA Environment Daily, our weekly guest on Pennsylvania Legacies. David, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. We've started off every program over the last, uh, what, three or four weeks talking about the budget process and especially zeroing in on the revenue package that came out late in July. It's been sort of a parade of terrible ideas that we've uh, we've delved into and unpacked somewhat. One important piece of the legislation at issue here that we haven't discussed is an amendment that would shift responsibility for testing and treatment uh, for manganese to wastewater treatment facilities. And that has prompted still more backlash against this package of proposals. Can you uh, break down what's in this measure and why it's so unpopular in some quarters? Yeah, I I can. And uh, it seems like in every passing day, there's more and more people coming out against all these environmental riders in the uh, Senate passed version of their revenue package. But specifically with manganese, this was an amendment that was promoted by the Coal Alliance, the coal industry. They believe that treating manganese uh, that's in their discharge water at times is too expensive. 
although they've been doing it for 28 years. Now, all of a sudden, they've decided it's too expensive. And what this amendment would do would say, instead of enforcing a manganese discharge requirement at the point where they discharge it into a river or stream, the point of compliance, that point where they have to meet a discharge limit, would be shifted downstream to wherever a water user takes water out of a river or stream. And effectively, in many areas, that means there is no discharge limit because water users may be miles and miles and miles downstream. And this week, a letter came out to members of the House and Senate from all four local government associations, the townships, the boroughs, the counties, municipal authorities. They all came out and said they're opposed to this because this would change a lot of things for them. But importantly, it would force them to do much more testing where they take their water out of rivers and streams and do more treatment. So this is another example where, while apparently some of these things may have looked good in the dead of night when these bills were amended in the Senate, although the House also has a provision, similar provision in a bill, uh, all these groups are now coming out against these environmental writers. Just for context, what is the environmental risk posed by manganese specifically? Are we talking about health effects? Is it effects on the ecosystem or what? Well, the number one effect is effect on aquatic life, just like Iron. Iron and manganese are the two things that come off uh, mining sites at times, and they both have effects on aquatic life, and particularly manganese can make a, help make a, a stream sterile, kill the little bugs that the higher forms of fish and other things in the stream eat. With respect to drinking water, manganese in particular causes odor problems, it causes taste problems, and EPA is in the middle of setting a maximum contaminant level for manganese in particular. Returning to the subject of clean drinking water, this is something we've touched on pretty recently. We talked about how DEP is trying to meet its obligation to enforce clean drinking water standards under federal law. We have a little bit more detail this week. Can you explain what we've learned about how DEP is meeting that challenge? Well, there were two major things announced. As some people may recall, DEP had a lot of funding cut from their budget, in particular for safe drinking water, and the federal government called them on it saying, you're not meeting minimum state requirements. So to put back that funding, some of that funding, they passed a proposed permit fee increase package out of the Environmental Quality Board a couple months ago. That package is now going to be available for public comment in the bulletin get another step toward finalizing that package. So that's good news. DEP also announced that they would have hired uh, at least two new staff. An additional four vacancies are currently in the process of being filled. That's a total of six. The funding package would provide financial support for a total of about 30 positions if it's finalized. So, you know, you're, you're talking about small steps, hiring real people with more coming down the pike if that fee package gets through and is is finalized. And do you expect any significant pushback on the fees? Well, there's some water companies that have expressed some uh, concern about the fees, yet they haven't proposed an alternative. I mean, in terms of discussions, DEP has said, okay, we need to raise somewhere close to $8 million, $7.7 million uh, or so to fund these positions if you have a better idea of how to do it, let's discuss it. But no 
better ideas came forward. So while there's some grumbling with the water companies, and some of those water companies have legislators' ears, we'll have to see how serious that opposition uh, is. Let's talk about the bay a little bit. It seems like when you see the words Chesapeake Bay in a headline, you just sort of instinctively brace for bad news lately. It seems like less and less funding for this very important work. However, I understand there has been, uh, there's some reason for optimism recently, signs of progress in cleaning up the bay. Yeah, there is. Um, For the third year in a row, it looks like the so-called dead zone, they call it, where they have uh, depleted oxygen areas in in the bays that don't allow bay grasses and other other things to grow. That's the smallest uh, it's been. And if this continues this season, which it looks like it, it probably will, this three-year stretch of significantly improved water quality, it will be the, the first time that that has happened, that water quality has improved for three years in a row since they began monitoring in 1985. So that's been really, really good news and shows that we continue to be on the right trajectory and trend um, in spite of the fact that some people think, well, all this stuff that we're doing is not working. Clearly, these efforts are not only working to clean up streams and, and rivers in Pennsylvania that you know we sit down and fish on their banks, but it's also having a very positive impact on bay water quality. So that was uh, was good news. So, I mean, clear evidence of return on investment. Do you see that affecting the debate at all over how much federal support the bay gets going forward? I think clearly. I mean, I think everybody now recognizes we're on the right trends. And a presentation to Pennsylvania's steering committee that's charged with developing the next round of measures Pennsylvania is going to take met on Thursday. And they had a presentation by the Susquehanna River Basin Commission that, again, confirmed all this, that we're, we are on the right trends. And that trend is down in terms of nutrients and sediments. And uh, what we need to do is do a better job of targeting the resources we have, bring more resources to that effort, because what we're doing is working. David Hess joins us every week to look back at the week's environment and conservation news. And uh, once again, Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us. Sure. Anytime. Thanks. getting ready to tackle another reforestation project next year in the Mashannon State Forest. As part of that effort, project lead Laura Bray is boning up on birds. Not just any birds, though. She's looking at two particular species whose fortunes are tied to the health of the landscape. I sat down with Laura and asked her to explain. Laura, you're not an ornithologist by training. No, not at all. Not a a biologist of any kind? No, I started college with a biology focus, but quickly switched gears to uh, business. I have a business degree, and my background is in craft beer. <laughs> Not a bad place to come from. Yeah. We're, we're really glad to have you on board with that set of skills. Thank you, thank you. So, okay, despite not being an ornithologist, you have recently become somewhat expert on a couple of different bird species. What are they? Yes, uh, the golden-winged warbler and the American woodcock is a, is a target species I've been, I've been learning about through the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. 
They started a new program uh, called the Central Appalachian Habitat Stewardship, where they are seeking grant proposals for reforestation projects in the in the region. PAC is part of well an ongoing effort to reforest abandoned mine lands across the state. We're focusing right now on the Mashannon State Forest. That is correct. Uh, starting in 2016, PEC teamed up with Pennsylvania uh, DCNR, Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, Bureau of Forestry, to do some reforestation on abandoned mine land sites. These are legacy mine lands that are previously reclaimed uh, to, to kind of grasslands. And the soil there is compacted um, and it's just kind of barren mine lands with grass growing, um, but not a whole lot of uh, tree species can thrive in that, in that current environment. And where do the golden-winged warbler and the American woodcock come into this? Why do we, why do we care about these particular birds? Well, these birds are reliant on early secessional forests. They are known to breed and nest in the central Appalachian region before uh, migrating south uh, for the winter. And they are dependent on these young forest habitats. So the reason we're specifically interested in the golden-winged warbler and the American woodcock, not because we like these birds more than other birds, but because if we can create conditions where they will thrive... That tells us something about the health of the land. Absolutely. The idea is to enhance biodiversity in these forest lands. So it's often you have a, a lot of mature trees um, that grow in forest lands. And then in our case, we have this strip, these kind of serpentines of abandoned mine land, which create a perfect opportunity for us to, to plant some new trees. Um, in this case, we're going for the young successional forest which is, it's not typically the kind of the forest you think of. It's more of a shrubby uh, kind of situation. Particularly, these species are reliant on the young successional forest for, for their mating and for their nesting. It's interesting because you only see these young forests with disturbances, such as abandoned mine lands. Um, so it's, it's a great opportunity for us to, to reintroduce this kind of habitat for these birds that are in need. The golden-winged warbler and the American woodcock are, populations are in decline because these sort of forest lands uh, just aren't very existent right now in Pennsylvania. And so the young secessional forest land, would be that would be like a stage on the way to a longer-term recovery goal? That is correct. And we're going to be planting some quaking aspen trees. The quaking aspen are, are great for young secessional forests because they have some regenerative qualities. So these trees can be harvested very early on, and they can grow back through um, shoots off of their, off their roots. Um, so it's very easy to manage the quaking aspen for a young successional forest because it's, they, they grow back vigorously on these sorts of disturbed mine lands. Uh, we're also doing uh, mixed-in with the quaking aspen. We have some white pine. Um, specifically, we're looking at planting about 40,000 quaking aspen, about 14,000 white pine um, for a total of, of 54,500 trees, approximately, on 55 acres in the Mishannon Forest. How, how are we executing this plan? What's the cost? Are we going to use volunteers? Uh, are we uh, contracting people to do the, the planting of the trees? Uh, yes, yeah, so we have an ongoing partnership with 
uh, DCNR Bureau of Forestry. They help immensely in this project. They donate the the seedlings for the trees. Uh, Pennsylvania Environmental Council is responsible for the preparatory staging uh, of the reforestation project. So we bring in the heavy contractors to do the ripping, and we are going to be bringing in some volunteers. We're, We're aiming at about 70 volunteers to help with the planting um, we're also going to be contracting some professional planters because the site's, the site's pretty big. This will be the biggest reforestation project that Peck has done so far. Um, so it will be a mix of volunteers and professional planters, um, and there will, of course, be some educational demonstrations going on, and we'll be emphasizing some outreach and building awareness for reforestation of abandoned mine lands. At Peck, when we work on abandoned mine reclamation projects, it seems like the emphasis is often on water quality. What will the impact of this work be on this particular watershed? The Michigan State Forest is still part of the Susquehanna River Basin, um, which continues some ongoing efforts to improve water quality in that area. Additionally, planting trees always helps to eliminate erosion, of course, it helps to reduce CO2 in our atmosphere. Um, so there's quite a, a lot of benefits in addition to providing habitat for these target bird species. Also, it's worth mentioning in Michannon State Forest, there's an existing elk population, um, which bring a lot of visitors to the area to, to view these elk. And while we were building our management plan for the forest land, we wanted to make sure that we're still conserving the habitat for these elk. Um, so within the 55 acres that we're foresting, we're going to be planting 10 acres of wildlife food plots uh, for the native elk and deer to, to graze upon. Um, and it's mutually beneficial because the uh, the bird species are also reliant on kind of what they call a mosaic forest. Um, so with the, the food plot, we're going to be planting some native grasses and shrubs to kind of blend in with our seedlings. So there'll be a mixture of, of trees and shrubs and grasses that provide a lot of opportunity for for all the native wildlife species to thrive. So I mean, the whole outcome of this hinges on how well these birds are doing. How will we know how well these birds are doing? How do you measure success? That's a great question. So we teamed up with a local university, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Uh, there is a professor there, Jeff Larkin, he has his doctorate in animal science and also has a background in forestry and ecology. So Peck has teamed up with him and his class to help monitor the species. So he's going to be making a few trips up to Michigan State Forest and conducting what they call point counts to see if we were successful in attracting the golden wing warbler and the American woodcock. Um, we've also teamed up with Audubon, Pennsylvania, to conduct some of the same monitoring. Um, So they'll be working in tandem to see if we have attracted these bird species. And uh, a number of partners are involved in this, obviously. This is part of a larger regional initiative that Peck is working on. That is correct. The uh, Appalachian Regional Reforestation Initiative is a big partner in this. Um, They have developed the forestry reclamation approach, which we will be using. Uh, It's kind of a scientific standard for uh, ripping and planting trees to to ensure that you're successful in your reforestation efforts. So they're they're an ongoing partner um, that we rely on great resources to help us along with this project. So this is work that, assuming the project goes forward as we've envisioned it, this is happening over the next year or two. What's the time frame? 
The plan is to rip the ground in the fall. That will allow for rain and snow to infiltrate the soil. Um, and then we're going to be doing our planting in the springtime. We're looking at Earth Day being a good time to interact with volunteers and get people out there and planting trees. It's kind of a peck tradition, I think. Yes, it is. This will be the third year we do an Earth Day reforestation project. Well, Laura, best of luck. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Laura Bray is project coordinator at PEC. She's working on the reforestation project in the Shannon State Forest. You'll find more on our abandoned mine reclamation and reforestation work at PECPA.org. While you're there, check out past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies. We've got videos, articles, blog posts, events, and much more. You can find our positions on all current legislation, a calendar of upcoming legislative uh, committee meetings and events that you'll want to be on top of. Vast informational resources await you at peckpa.org. We invite you to check them out and to follow us on Twitter at peckpa. You can, of course, connect with us on Facebook, too. We are Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Subscribe to the Pennsylvania Legacies podcast in iTunes, in SoundCloud. We're on Google Play and Stitcher as well. Anywhere you can plug in an RSS feed to a podcatcher, you will be able to access our program, or you can just listen live on the website. One more time, the address is PECPA.org. We'll have another episode of Pennsylvania Legacies next Friday. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.